0: How's it guys, you're listening to sasurfski.com. We're all about surfski, we're all about paddling, and your host, Robin Tindall, is coming in hot, straight out of Cape Town. Guys, welcome back to the S.A. Surfski podcast. Uh, I've been meaning for a long time to get the famous Billy Harker onto the podcast, and now that we're in this crazy lockdown period, i managed to pin the guy down, he's pretty busy and uh, he's uh, joining us right now and if you are a south african paddler you know who billy Harker is he does not need an introduction but for the international guys that are listening you probably know who he is anyway but let me give you a little, little bit of background and billy if you want to kind of flesh this out if i'm missing anything then please step in but I think for me, uh, Billy Harker is Mr. Surfski. In fact, he owns the domain surfski.co.za for South Africa, which is, I think, uh, very apt. Um, but he literally, for me, dragged surfski kind of from a life-saving sport um, into the mainstream and really made surfski what it is in South Africa now. And I think South African surfski has a big influence on the rest of the world and uh, so as a result i think billy's got a huge huge role to play in that so he's organized some of the best if not the best i think without question perhaps the best surf ski series that south africa has seen and uh, really kind of shaped the sport as it is right now so uh, i think as paddlers we owe a debt of gratitude for the sport that we we get to enjoy right now billy am i underselling you or am i overselling you
1: oh, look i think i think the first thing was uh, uh, is that um, you know i wasn't involved in, in um In the sport, going from uh, life-saving, or or for for life-saving, opening up the sport to non-paddlers, to non-canoeists. So Sorry, I'm I'm saying this wrong. When I first was involved with paddling, uh, in order to paddle surfski races, you had to be a lifeguard. Um, The process through which the surfski paddling events were opened up to non-lifeguards, I had no role to play in that. And, and there were lots of people that that, uh, that laid the groundwork before I, I turned up uh, in Durban and in Cape Town. So I certainly didn't, you know, come from absolute scratch. There were lots of individuals who were, you know, critical to the success of uh, of surfski paddling. And uh, and in fact, in Durban, I emulated what the guys were doing in Durban when I first started in Cape Town. So, uh, but my timing, my timing was uh, was, was fortuitous because. Uh, Because just as I sort of got involved with organizing races, uh, the sport had been opened up to the canoeing fraternity.
0: So well, th- thanks for correcting that. Because you know, um, I am just point out that I got into Volvo Surf Ski right on the tail end of uh, of uh, Billy's um, involvement with the sport. So there's a lot that we're going to talk about today. It's going to be news to me as well. It's one of the reasons, and it is a selfish reason for me wanting to chat to Billy to just to find out what the sport I love so much, what it was like before uh, before my time. So uh, yeah, Billy, thanks for stepping that right there's so much to talk about when it comes to yourself and, and involvement with surfski. You know, we, we actually don't know where to start, but maybe the simplest thing is just maybe let's just do it chronologically kind of starting from the beginning and let's just work through it and see how we go. So the obvious question to ask, and uh, perhaps it's a bit cliche, but it's a good place to start is how did you discover surfski as a, as a participant, as a sportsman? And how did you get involved? Where, what was your background?
1: Um, so what happened with me is that I, I came back from a two years overseas after having studied and, to the army and school and stuff, and um, th- when I uh, got back, it was in February and it was doozy time. And my brother-in-law, um, who wasn't paddling when I when I left, was now paddling and asked me to second him on the doozy. And um, I had been on a three-month drinking spree, so I was in bad, bad shape. And uh, and I seconded my brother-in-law, and at the end of this whole episode, and they were quite serious paddlers. So I was running off them with water and putting up the tents and cooking and I said to myself, look, I never, ever want to do seconding ever again. But my interest in paddling was peaked. and uh, I joined a very dear friend of mine, Denzel Nightingale, who had taken up the sport. And, um, and so I participated in, um, in two doozies. And then um, after that, I actually got a transfer uh, to Cape Town. Uh, for, sorry, before going to Cape Town, um, a chap by the name of Sam Wire. He is the person who originally... Took all of the KZN paddling races and put them into a series, and um, and there were ten races which were run in KwaZulu Natal, and then I actually participated with my mate Denzel Ntigel in the first two series, which consisted of 30 or 40 people turning up on the weekend, different venues along the beachfront and along the the KZN North and South Coast, and uh, yeah, I mean it was, but it was wild and woolly. I mean it was. It was a speedos, no safety gear. Uh, I mean, to, to recount a story, my first proper paddling experience was was uh, on the uh, on the south coast, and um, the surf was too big. Uh, further down the coast, we were supposed to go from um, Toti, but the northeast was blowing. So they decided that we would go to a beach that I'd never even heard of, pingo, which is basically off the uh, off the airport. And we turned up there, and the the surf must have been six to eight foot and the wind must have been blowing about 30 knots because uh, the sea was wild. And myself and this uh, chap, Denzil, were paddling. It was called a duckbill nose. It had like a massive big flat uh, front nose section. And uh, we, we, we got into the mid-break, got absolutely pummeled. But fortunately, it was actually quite low tide. So we managed to jump off the ski and then kind of stay there for a little bit. And then the sea went flat, we jumped on and, and we managed to get out. Anyway, so we get out. Remember, there's 20 or 30 people there. They've all disappeared. And we then turn uh, to the south and we start heading south. And neither of us had ever been in a surf ski on a run before. We never even knew what a run was. But the sea was so big and running so fast that we were both eventually catching runs without even knowing what we were doing and actually lying. We were both lying backwards on our backs, flat. Remember, we were quite young. We were 25, 26, and we were lying with our with our backs flat on the on the on the on the deck of the of this boat to try and keep the nose out of the water, and uh, and off we went. And we just had the most radical, out of this world experience. We came in a toti in like 10 foot of surf. Don't know how we got in, and uh, and that was really my 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 opener, and you know, to the stoke of what surfski paddling is all about.
0: So I'm guessing that's what the mid mid 90s ninety six ninety seven 95 96 97 when when's
1: this Correct exactly it was uh, that was 1996
0: 1997 And um how many so so that was this was this relatively early in the in the in the transition from lifesaver from self a, a sport for lifesavers to kind of opening it up was this the how many how many years into into the sport was this
1: uh, I think it was it was it was definitely very near the beginning of when knurfs were allowed to participate. Bearing in mind, I didn't have my SPA at the time. So, you know, it wasn't a question. We just turned up and we, we could do it. We didn't even know that it was an issue, but it was always a hot topic. Whenever there were races from Marine on a, on a Southwest with flat conditions, then the, the surf ski paddlers were always like, Oh no, now the river guys are going to, going to shape and just wait until there's a bit of a run and wait till the Northeast comes. It was a big deal at that time. There was a, a definite split between surf ski paddlers and the and the river guys, you know, and and the two the, the double combination at the time were unbelievable. in the flat was Gary Clark, who owns Eric Clark's uh, kayaks, and uh, and Wayne Vollock, who who was uh, an exceptional flatwater paddler. He also did well in the fish and stuff. But those two guys in a double, the surf ski paddlers couldn't touch them, and it irritated them to no end. When the uh, when the river guys came to the ocean and started, uh, you know. Winning the races and stuff like that.
0: So, so, I mean, you're Mr. Surfski now, and I've certainly seen you on a downwind. Well, I've seen the back of you on a downwind. But back then, you would have been the canoeing brigade, or would you have been, would you have been considered one of the surfski guys?
1: Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't much of a, a, a canoeist. I mean, you know, we... Uh, although myself and Denzel, we came 70th in the, in the fish when they were like, you know, 1,500, 1,800 paddlers. So we were, we were okay, but we, I, I was personally never a, never a machine paddler or anything like that. I mean, we, I was... You know, at rank absolute novice at this time. So, I mean, at that time, I mean, I had a doozy. I mean, I must have started in the last batch, and my first day was eight and a half hours type of thing. So, we were we were novices, so we weren't considered anything. Nobody even spoke about us because we were at the back.
0: <laughs> how many how many guys were you getting on the beach at those um, those early races? How many participants were rocking up for the for full, full, what was the average for those races in those days?
1: Well, uh, you know, I remember the races on the coast certainly. You would get about thirty people, and then I think uh, you know the races at Marine would would uh, this Marine life Saving Club in the Durban Bay. You would be getting sort of around hundred, a hundred paddlers. So it was a handy. It wasn't it wasn't small hundred. I think maybe the biggest. I'm guessing now. I really I don't I don't have numbers, but uh, I would I would guess about a hundred people. Um, you know the Marine Friday night series was was going at this time as well. So that was that was a thing for a long time. When I arrived, it was it was going. Um, you know, not huge sponsorship and stuff. It was it was a chilled vibe. Um, you know, go down, do the dice, few down downs, um, and then the Sam Wire uh, series. Uh, it, was, it was called the Bateman Ball and Sursky series at that time when it was first put together as races connected to one another. And um, you know, the coastal races obviously fewer guys. and then in town you could start to get bigger bigger numbers. Uh, but I really I I, I don't have a, a list for you, or you know, I'd be guessing.
0: Yeah, I remember as a, as a nipper in Durban surf. I think uh, 12, I think 11 or 12 years old, I borrowed my dad's uh, actually my dad's mates' double surf ski, foam surf ski. I think the two of us, um, the two of us could barely pick this thing up. We were so so it was so heavy, and we were such kids. And uh, we went and did the wall back race a couple of times. I think that was running back yes. then as well from Pirates. And uh, yes. be, being you know young young kids and and super fit, we thought we could handle any surf. And I remember trying to paddle this. Must have weighed 35, 40 kgs. This, this thing. I'm sure it was full of water. Foam ski through the through the Pirate Shore break, trying to get there and back a couple of times. It was, uh, and that, that must have been in the early '90s as well. It was, but I, so how many? I'm just curious to know in those transition phases, how quickly, how, how rapidly did the canoeists kind of take to the surf ski thing? Were they were they chomping at the bit to get onto the onto the sea, or was it was it kind of the the, the lifesavers? It was their sport, and slowly over time, the canoeists kind of gravitated towards it.
1: Um, uh, again, I, I, I didn't know because I was I was brand new to the sport. I didn't give it any thought at all, so I, I can't answer that question. I, I don't know, but um, yeah, they, they, uh, it was more a case of that when the the really the good you know the, the strong river canoes came across to ski paddling, there was a sort of a thing about the fact that there were the traditional lifesavers who were good in the in the wave and the bump and the runs and the and the, the river canoes who who had no access. Now, obviously, particularly the inland guys who had no sort of interaction with the ocean. You know, something like myself who was a surfer, it wasn't an issue being in a bumpy sea uh, at all, you know, because I swim in the ocean, paddle, you know, surf, it wasn't a big deal. I think it was more a case of guys from who paddle river only and never spent much time in the sea. You know, obviously didn't know how to how to cope with, uh, with bumpy conditions and stuff.
0: Yeah, you still hear those conversations on the beach to, to this day about uh, the canoes are going to dominate or the surf the guys are going to get ahead. Um yeah, no. Although at the front end of our sport, yeah, it seems that uh, the good paddlers dominate regardless of whether they're in a they're in a rapid and a marathon boat or in a surf they get going. But so yep. I'm I'm curious now, how how did you, why did you maybe as a better question um, transition from just being a participant into kind of stepping up and starting to to run races? Because that's a it's a thankless task to step up and run a, yeah. run a race. You put yourself in the firing line. There's virtually no upside to it besides putting on something great for your mates. So I'm always curious when someone kind of steps forward and says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put something on. What was, what was the trigger for you? Um,
1: so what actually happened is when we, uh, now I'm back from overseas working in Durban and, uh, you know, getting into the real world was, I found it a big challenge. I didn't like waking up every day and going to work. And so I used to, I used to surf every day before work. Uh, just to cope with that actual whole work thing, and then I got into canoeing as well, um, and um, and then we, uh, myself and the strain of my Denzel, we did the, the we did the umco and at the overnight stop, we uh, got absolutely hammered on Kalua uh, In fact, um, uh, Mark, the chap who just died in the in the aeroplane, uh, I can't think of his last name now. Um, he he, Mark Parrow and uh, and Colin Simpkins had these. Um, Mexican-style sort of bullet things crisscrossing their chest. And those had tequila and Kulua inside. And then on, on their backs, they were carrying milk and Kulua. So they would open up like a grenade type of thing. You would smash that. And then they would finish you off with the, uh, with the milk and Kulua. <laughs> because it was the Kulua, you know, it was called the Kulua Umkamau's Marathon. Yes, and we had such a jaw. And it was only the paddlers that were in the valley at the overnight stop. And myself and Denzel got well into the jaw, and on the night actually, the chap on the committee at Kingfisher Canoe Club, or Rod Davy, he actually said he said to us, "Hey, you guys should get involved with the with the committee. Are you know, we looking for members?" So we said, "Okay, we'll we'll come down." Uh, anyway, first first uh, first meeting happened, and um, they said, "Right, all the all the cool jobs were taken," and then they said, "Okay, right, who wants to be the the club scribe?" And my friend is asking, I said, "Okay, I'll be that. That's not a problem. I don't mind writing weekly." newsletter. And, uh, and then they said, right, who wants to be the fundraiser? And I stuck up my hand because I'd always enjoyed organized things. You know, with my group of friends, I was always organizing stuff. I just, I loved organizing parties. I loved organizing people to, to go to parties. And, uh, and I said, well, look, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be the club fundraiser type of thing. Anyway, it turns out that Denzel was the most, uh, amazing club scrub writer you've ever come across in your whole life because he He loved the nuance of people and the interaction, and the inside track and the scandal. And he wrote these fantastic emails to uh, to the club. And uh, and I loved organizing stuff. And so together as a team, we worked so well together because Denzel would write the stuff down, and then I would you know create these things. And the first thing we did, we the club needed a fence because stuff was getting stolen. So we we had the fence fund function and um, for two weeks we handed out flyers saying 10 rand will get you crabs and the club a fence. Of course, the Oaks didn't know what on earth we were going on about and, um, and then what we put together was, uh, was crab racing, a crab racing evening and we had to raise 12,000 rand to pay for the whole fence and we actually did it. We raised 12 grand on the night uh, and it basically is, you know, you put a, a circle on the ground and you cut off the top of a dustbin, and you put the crabs inside the box, and you lift up the crabs, and the crabs race to the side. And everybody takes bets on the crabs. But then what you also do is before the race, you auction off the crabs. So each crab, number one to five, gets given a name. Rob Tyndall, out of Cape Town, organizing a race, he's strong on the finish, Who's who's gonna, and then people would buy the crab for a grand or two or three or whatever as a syndicate. And then if they won, then they would, they would divide the profits. Anyway, so the story doesn't end there because on the Monday morning after we'd we raised this money, I get a call from uh, Rob Davy to tell me, he said, listen boss, geez, those guys took the, took the uh, marquee down quickly. So I said, they took the marquee down already. <laughs> anyway, so I raced over there, blow me down. Oaks had stolen the flipping marquee, which cost 12,000 rand to replace. <laughs> so, so yeah so anyway i needed to say the club does actually now have a fence but uh but that that crab racing uh event went on for another 10 years after that and uh also did a a, a, a legendary christmas party at the club i mean it's just a jaw that's never been repeated and if you go there the club still has the pictures of these events on the wall so there were two amazing events and i, I got a huge Amount of satisfaction out of it. I didn't realize at the time how meaningful that actually was, but um, I did. I just really enjoyed organizing things. I loved organizing parties. I loved communicating with people. I am, you know, I am intrinsically excited about that type of stuff. And um, and as it turns out, it, it, it's it's something that I, you know, that later on down the track would be how I decided to actually give this whole Sersky thing a crack.
0: Well, 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 well that i mean tell us of that transition so you, how did you go from, from from having from having people bet on the fastest crab to putting together you know what what became possibly you know the biggest most successful surf ski series perhaps the, the world has seen I, in my world's fairly yeah. small so maybe i'm doing if i'm i apologize about giving some other races out there uh, an injustice there uh, but certainly a south african contest you know? so what what was your first what was your first surf ski race was it done for King, kingfisher canoe club
1: no, so what happened was I actually um, I got uh, I got a, I got a transfer to Cape Town and um, and then when I turned up there, I um, I basically was looking for things to do and and, um, and I didn't have a ski at the time and I didn't you know I didn't know anybody that paddled in the sea and I just when I arrived I basically got into I did Argus initially when I arrived. Then I then I took up running and I did the um uh, the nine and a half marathon. This is now into winter. And, and in Cape Town in winter, I mean, I, I, w- the furthest thing from my mind was paddling because I just couldn't believe that anyone in their right mind would actually go paddling in the weather. Uh, and we had a particularly rainy winter that year. Uh, at the end of, of, uh, of winter, I went to Milniton Canoe Club, which was the closest to where I lived. I lived in, uh, in Camps Bay. And I arrived uh, at our, what I thought was the start of the paddling season. And I went into the club and they said, no, 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 actually, we're closing tonight. So I said, well, what, what, what do you mean you're closing? I said, no, no, no. Here in the Western Cape, we paddle in the winter. I thought to myself, you actually got to have rocks in your head, boss. Um, anyway, and then from there, um, the Friday Night Clifton series uh, down at Clifton Life Saving Club was was kind of kicking off, and uh, I got involved with that. And, um, and then uh, I did that for a season. And then uh, after about six months or so, I approached the, the organizer of that and Friday Night Series. His name is Brian Anley. And he actually owned the, the kayak shop, Brian's Kikes. And I said, uh, I said to him, hey, listen, you know, in KwaZulu-Natal, they've got a series that runs on Sundays. And, um, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm quite keen to, you know, put a few races together. Um, and, and he said to me, listen here, in the Western Cape, we paddle on the weekends on Saturdays. No one paddles on Sundays. So I said, well, why, why not? He said, well, well, obviously for religious reasons, the, the canoeing takes place. All the races were on Saturdays. None of them were on Sundays. So I said, listen, Brian, I'm telling you now, if you put it on Sundays, it'll work much better because people have got stuff to do on Saturdays. You know, there's school sport, there's whatever else there is. People got stuff to do Saturday morning. This is, you've got to remember, this is 25 years ago. People used to, you know, on Saturday morning, go and do their house chores and, you know, all that type of thing. And he said to me, listen here, if you organize a race and can get more than 15 people to attend, I'll give you a boat." So I was like, okay, well, let's have a look at that. And, uh, um, and down in the Western Cape, I was actually a, a mate of mine from Durban by the name of Pierre Carbonell. His, him and his wife, Natalie had moved down to the Western Cape, and we used to do the Friday night series together. And, uh, and we decided to, to look at putting some races together. Um, you know, and I think you know my my main motivation really uh, at that time was because I was single and and new to Cape Town. I'd only been there for say uh, between six months and a year, and I actually didn't know anyone, and and I didn't actually have anything to do. It sounds silly, but it was you know I had two mates, Scott McLeod Smith and Pierre Corbinel, both married, um, and you, you you could only spend so much time with the married couple before it gets a little awkward. So. I had a lot of time on my hands outside of my job was Monday to Friday. And when my work finished at 5. PM, I didn't do any more work. And on Friday afternoon, that was it. There was, it was no weekend work either. So I had a lot of time on my hands. And, um, and again, you know, it's, it it just, I I did it more for the fun of having something to do. And because I enjoyed organizing stuff. And, uh, and then, you know, as soon as I, I decided or committed myself to to organising something. I really got stuck in, you know, in the same way as, as you have been doing. If people were, I think, if people understood how much effort you put into to make something work, like you have done with the Freedom Paddle, that you 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 can't get you can't get paid enough money. You, you, that that motivation that you have is an internal thing. You can't make it up. You can't you can't fake it. Are you with me? you know it's 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 it 100% consumes your entire life you know especially when there's when there's uh, when there's nothing really there to work from and you have to create something from scratch um yeah and anyway so we we uh really I, how it, how it happened that i was able to kick it off so quickly was because i worked in the computer industry and i had uh, I worked for a, a pr- very progressive communications company. They were very progressive with their communication, and um, we worked extensively using email. and it was brand new. But it was at a time where people didn't actually use com- email to communicate with one another. If you communicated with another company, you did it via fax. You only communicated with your organization via email internally. There was in the days of intranet and Extranet. That was a thing. You know it's either i'm I'm emailing somebody in the office. But outside of the office world, well, you got a fax tag, because people didn't really know how to use their email in that way. And, um, and so when I started, I went to the Western Province um, canoeing and I asked them for the database. And I actually phoned up every single person on the canoeing database. It was about 300, 350 people. I phoned every single person and asked them for their email address. Anyway, so once I had the email addresses, um, Pierre Carbonell, my mate, actually wrote the first email that went out to, to these people. And obviously the time, the race day was coming. So it was, it, was, it was tight. We needed to, so the email only went out on a Thursday and the race was on that Sunday. And we had no other means of communicating with people. We had sort of told people in our, in our close circle. Anyway, so the email went out on the Thursday. Then on the Friday night, there was a, a, a Friday night dance. And I'll never forget myself and Pierre. Nobody knew us. I mean, we were... Two strangers standing in the corner. I mean, we, no one spoke to us because they didn't, you know what I mean? They were KPs that we didn't know. That none of, nobody knew us. And um, anyway, so we're standing there, myself and Pierre, we're having a beer after the dust. And it was, quite a, it, was, it was quite an occasion, the Friday Night dust. It was a jaw. People went flat out. Anyway, so we're standing there, and no one says a word. No one says a word about the fact that there's a race on the weekend. It's complete non issue. And then all of a sudden, I heard somebody say to me, hey, did you receive an email? question mark from Pierre and Billy. And the guy said, "Yeah." hey, I was like, yes, how how did they do that? How did they actually send us an email? And then went to the next guy, hey, did you get an email? Did you get an email? And next thing, the whole room was was talking about the race. And myself and Pierre were absolutely flabbergasted. Anyway, so uh, that was the first race. And I think we got 45 people to turn up, which was the biggest paddling race you know, it was huge. It was like people couldn't believe it. And we went from 45 to 65 to 80, you know, as the, as the word got out, every week from there. The, uh, and I think our record uh, attendance that year was in Simonstown. Um, we had a race there. Uh, and it was quite a funny story because uh, my, my dear friend, Scott McLeod Smith, he was actually S1, the first registered paddler in the Western Cape. It was his, th- his and Pierre's 30th birthday party. And the theme was one piece, uh, a one-piece party, no underwear. And Pierre and, uh, and, and Scott actually stood at the front desk and checked everybody as they arrived that they only had one piece. And uh, it was a wild swinging party, boss. We went flat out. And all the race organizers, myself, Pierre, Scott, and Natalie, were at the party. We all slept over there. We all woke up late, all right? And uh, the registration was at the, the naval base in Simonstown. And boss, it was a circus. We didn't know if we were coming or going. All of a sudden, we had like 120 paddlers turn up for this first race. Uh, to this day, I don't know how on earth we actually pulled it off. You know, Got results out, did the whole thing, prizes. We were so blind drunk. I lost my keys. I mean, it was just an absolute circus.
0: For those, the story, as I say, this is before my time, but it, it, when we talk about these times back for people talk about the race and they talk about Billy and the conversation always swings to the party after the pedal. Um, and that, it seems, Billy, you seem to be synonymous with putting on a great race, but equally maybe infamous for throwing a shindig after the event that... People are still talking talking about. So, yeah, so it sounds like I mean you you kind of really built a sense of community where people kind of had a, a home and a, and a and a friendship circle. Do you think that was? Do you think that was one of the keys to to kind of growing the sport from forty people on the beach to? I mean, I th- what is what was the record? I think at one of the grading races you got over five hundred people at, at a race.
1: Yeah, we uh, the record we got was five twenty five in Durban, and then in the Western Cape it was it was three twenty five. But uh, I think
0: yeah,
1: I, I, I think it, we. Um, it, 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 And I think, I mean, I don't know, I I really, everything I say is a a complete guess. I I really, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. But there was a a massive influx of people in their 30s. That was just the way it is now. Uh, It it was then. There was a huge influx of people who were from 25 to 35. Um, I don't know if this had anything to do with the fact that we we got men's health involved uh, and the magazine was incredibly strong. And when we branded at the Men's Health Service Key Series, all those people at that time that had a bit of money, you know, things were very buoyant in the country at that time. People people were doing well, brands were spending money. And, um, uh, uh, you know, I definitely feel that, that the Men's Health uh, involvement in the series was uh, had a huge impact on it and, uh, you know, sent it out to a larger audience. The fact of the matter is that I actually loved the party. You know, for me, uh, the celebration around the paddling event was was equally as important as the actual actual paddling race itself, and and I think because there were so many new paddlers, for them that was also what a jaw. have a lack of paddle and then uh, and then you know you know have a, have a have a cracking party, and we had amazing brands that you know people like Heineken, Joe Carney was worked at at uh, uh, at, at SAB and he helps with Heineken. I mean we 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 you know, he used to actually interview all the, all the promoters. I mean, so we had cracking dolls down on the beach. I mean, it was, uh, you know, and then, and then we also had a a dear friend of mine, Louise Otter from, from the Western Cape. And and she, she was involved at Club, Molson uh, Canoe Club. And she got involved with us and and got, got involved on the ground, actually assisting in organizing the things. And she got the, got the girls coming in. I mean, we, in the Western Cape at a the time, there were 50, 60 girls that were paddling. There were a lot of women. I mean, and uh, yeah, it was, it was just a, no, but anyway, I, I definitely enjoyed the parties and, and spent a lot of effort and energy in, in organising great apresursity parties.
0: So somebody wind it back a little bit, so you, you we're back in Cape Town now you've been asked to do that race you know you, the, the email story we didn't know we had kind of the kind of Bill Gates amongst the paddling here uh, kind of, <laughs> of launching email as the as the communication channel here um so when it, when it, is this like the, is this like the late nineties and and where was that first race, which beach did you run it from uh,
1: so the first race was it was nineteen ninety 1990, about nineteen ninety eight um you know, actually, I, I've lost my calendar that I had on the wall, but I seem to remember we did a Clifton-Milnerton, something like that. We did like a, you know, we used to just do races from wherever, whenever. Some of the earlier ones, Clifton-Milnerton, we did one at Fishhook. We did one in Simonstown. Uh, Bloberg, you know, out and back, we did a Milnerton-Bloberg. Uh, I don't think I introduced how it came at the time. But, yeah, we just used to go wherever. Gordon's Bay Strand. That, you know, uh, uh, Herbert Conradi's brother, Daniel Conradi, had died the year before. And so we had a memorial at the Strand, which still runs today. We did one out there. So, I mean, I think also one of the one of the really key things that I got right right at the very beginning is that I, I really worked hard to understand what had happened before I was actually around. And so I engaged with anybody and everybody that had ever had anything or anything to do w- with paddling, and uh, and and took their lead. You know, I wasn't uh, I wasn't sort of brazen. The fact of the matter, I knew very very little about surf ski paddling, and so I relied on on those people's inputs and expertise. Guys like Peter Cole from from Fishhook. Um, there was a Tom guy from Strand. Tom, you know, if, every single person that I could lean on for advice and support, I did that, and I, and I sought. I sought their input, and yeah. Um, uh, you know, so, and I was very fortunate that I, you know, we managed to to get everybody onto the the same page. It wasn't like that at the end, but certainly in the beginning, we uh, we managed to have everybody pulling in the same direction. Everybody, everybody was excited about it. Everybody traveled. Everybody wanted to be at all the events. There was no, there really was no, um, how can I say, tribalism or clubism or anything like that. Everybody traveled everywhere. Um, and I think particularly in Cape Town, um, it was easier to travel around because the, the traffic wasn't such an issue. You know, to go and do the milneton uh, bloberg uh from Camps Bay would be a 15-20 minute drive, no problem during traffic hour. You know what I mean? But in today's day, you'd have to leave at 3.30 to be there on time. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, definitely a key thing. If you know, I'd say to anybody, if they ever want to do anything like this ever again, you you know, take a lot of time to seek the counsel of anybody who's had any type of input and, and also give those people credit wherever you can. You know, I still to this day I talk about Greg Bennett from Yamaha and Durban, Sam Wire, the late Sam Wire from Imam Toti, you know, Anton Fouche, you know, older, Ross Poacher. All these guys put so much time and energy into the sport. And, um, you know, it's so important to, to give, the, give the credit where it's due. You know, uh, Bri- as I said, Brian Andy, this guy, he organized all the races in Cape Town. Uh, he was from Brian's Cikes. He, he just poured, poured energy into, uh, into the sport. And this all happened before, you know, I was there. So, yeah, that was, that was I think, one of my really critical I think it, it came out of born out of the fact that I actually didn't know anything about anything, that that I actually had to do it, but it turned out to be a, a, a great way to start and a great way to get everybody's um, support of uh, of all the races. You know that happened afterwards.
0: Well, maybe this is a good time for me to give a shout out to you, Billy. I mean, we we uh, we kind of employed that tactic with the freedom pedal, and you and I had uh, quite a few long chats about freedom pedal when it was just a just an, a germinating idea in my head so um yeah, yeah. thanks thank you to you actually for your time and and and, and guidance with, and still to this day being involved with the race so uh yeah i i can, I can second that and to whatever level of success we've had with the freedom pedal a lot of that is, has come from being ignorant and being willing to willing to listen to to those that have walked the road before so uh yeah. thanks so much for that billy it, it sounds like it sounds like those early days, it was fairly organic. You did a race. Why not? Let's get it to go. I, I got a boat. Uh, actually, I want to know if you ever got that surf ski. And then you did it again the next week because it worked well. When did it kind of formalize? Or, 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 was it, or was it your intention right from the early days to, to formalize it?
1: Um, uh, so what actually, how it actually happened is that I just, we, we ran a few races and that was kind of the end of, of, the, of the season coming into winter. And then... The following year, 1999, is when I actually put a formal series together, and that's when I approached the organization that I worked for, which is a company called Axis, and um, and w- with Axis, what happened is a Men's Health magazine had just launched sort of a year before, um, and I happened to be at, uh, at the Argus Cycle Tour where they were exhibiting, and I bought a Men's Health magazine, landed up subscribing to it, and it was like... It was written for me at that age. I was 30 years old. Everything that this magazine had was, was revolutionary in, in, uh, in men's magazines in, in, in South Africa and, in fact, around the world. And, um, and so I just decided that I had to get Men's Health magazine on, on board because it just the two things in my mind just lived perfectly together. And um, I, managed, uh, I managed to get that right. I met the, uh, the marketing manager. His name was uh, Andrew Sneddon. He's living in, in, uh, in, the, in Australia now, in Sydney. And, uh, and he actually paddled. So how about that? It was like I was imagining trying to get hold of the editor. I did not even know how magazines work, to be honest. I didn't know there was a, a business side and an editorial side. I didn't actually know how it all worked. But uh, I actually just phoned up, managed to get through to, uh, to Andrew Sneddon. I went and saw him, and uh, he immediately loved the idea. And the, the deal that we struck was such a hoot. I actually got my company access to pay for the stickers, for the men's health stickers, 10 grand went. And the deal was that we would pay for the stickers that went onto the boats. And, uh, and that was how it all started. And, and I think that, uh, that those stickers on the boats had a huge impact. I mean, they really, suddenly you had, well, everybody used to call them men's health surf skis. It was, it was a massive, People were, It was an instantaneously recognizable brand that looked great on the boats. They actually made the boats look good. And people loved those stickers. And, and it uh, yeah it just catapulted the, the visibility of the sport um, to a whole new level immediately. Because people would see the men's health boats and then they'd see them in the sea. And they're like, oh, okay, it's, it's, it's something that goes on, on the ocean. Because at the time, you you've got to understand, that if you were to go and see somebody and speak about the surf ski pattern, they would not have a cooking clue what you were talking about. That it, was, it was not a word that was known. Uh, people would say, well, what is it? Surf? What do you mean ski? Are you standing? They, they had no idea what on earth you were speaking about. It was completely an unknown. It was only known in the canoeing world what a surf ski was. I mean, in the, you know, in the, in the, in the life-saving world fraternity.
0: Um, the uh, did you get your Sersky by the way did uh, did Brian ever come through on his promise that you got more than 15 to the first race? Yes yes
1: yes but I used I used the Sersky as a as a you know as an incentive for the for the paddlers. You know at the end of the series we gave it away. I didn't I didn't keep it for myself. It wasn't for me. You know he offered it as a prize uh, to you know for the series. But yeah but no he gave it to us any he, he sponsored a, No, no, no. Yeah, and and, and Brian's kayaks continued to support the series. Uh, the very next year, Andy and Derek bought Brian's Kykes and they continue to support the series until until we finished, you
0: know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. shout out to Brian's Kykes. They're still supporting paddling to this day. Um, so thanks, Andy. Um, those stickers, was that the first time that stickers... Um, were you the big kind of rectangular stickers that we've almost come to make the, as the norm now for a canoeing race, a surf ski race? Were those, were those relatively new at that point? Were you the first to use it, or was had this been a, a tactic for a while? Um, I think I
1: think w- w- what uh, what actually happened is that my my my, sc- my friend Scott McLeod Smith, um, he actually owned a printing company, and I said to him, "I said, you listen listening, Scotty. I want these stickers to look amazing on the boat," and he said to me. There's only one way to do that. There's only one way to do it correctly: is to buy a high-quality vinyl cutout sticker. Because until then, everybody was using. You get your sticker, you slap it on, and then most of the time, halfway through the race, the thing would come off. Whereas, you know, the it, it was a 50-year vinyl cut-out sticker, and that that single thing that we did unknowingly became one of our key successes because the stickers went on. They looked good and they stayed on. You will see boats today with men's stickers on them and they still look good. The stickers are still in great condition. And, uh, and that was the whole thing. you got to remember, 25 years ago, 10,000 rand to spend 10,000 rand on stickers was a lot of money. You know what I mean? It was a big, big, big expense. Which, um, you know, I mean, you got to appreciate at the end we were spending, I think the stickers were 20 rand each. At the end, that's a lot of money for stickers. Bearing in mind, we had to make 5000 a year. You know what I mean?
0: No, it was it was crazy, but it was worth it. I remember when I, when I first got into the sport, around about 2009, 2010, I think I got my first surf ski. Um, I took so much care and with so much pride to stick my Discovery Health and uh, my men's health uh, actually, I'm not sure if Men's Health was involved. I don't think it was. I think it was just Discovery Health in the latter days. Um, I, you know, the cut out and get it and stick it on properly. I think I probably took about three hours in my back garden at home and uh, I it with pride because <laughs> yeah. I felt like I was a member of a tribe now, you know, that I belonged. So, yes. um, yeah, I think that was magic.
1: Yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely a, a, a huge success. And it amazed me. For, for 15 years, no one else did it. And I just I sort of thought to myself, I cannot understand why the other guys are still handing out, you know, these lame stickers, and 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 people don't—it's just weird. I don't know. Uh, to me, to me, there was a huge, important factor that 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 really worked so for, so well for us, you know. And and the stickers stayed on for years, and those moving billboards, you know, were, were huge value for the for the sponsors.
0: Yeah, we still now have with Freedom Paddle, we have our sponsors um, uh, saying saying to us, um, you know, got to do stickers like the men's health days, you know, so you've definitely yeah. set a standard there for the rest of us to uh, try, try and maintain. But I'm watching the time here and uh, I know the, the guys listening here of, uh, well, mind you, they're perhaps in lockdown, maybe you've got nothing better to do, but uh, we've got a lot of ground <laughs> to cover. So I want to jump ahead, Billy, and I want to talk about how how did how did this now jump from Cape Town to Durban? And also, yeah. Yeah. definite rivalry, and I think you fuel that rivalry in in a fun way. Uh, between the Durban series and the Cape Town series. They were, and you kind of hit the, you hit that magic thing um, that I always tried to do, and that was uh, summers in, uh, in Cape Town and winters in Durban. I managed to get yep. it the wrong way around. I had summers in Durban and winters in Cape Town for a while, which is asked backwards. Um, but you, you pulled that off. How, how did you create this kind of nationwide series? Um, how, was that just, because you're originally Durban, right? You're a Durbanite um, originally. Yes.
1: Yeah, I was, I was brought up in Durban. As I said earlier, I got a transfer to Cape Town, and so I was in Cape Town for two years. And then, um, at the after working for my company for two years and running the series for one year, just for you know, in the beginning, it was I just did it for fun. It, didn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a paid job. Um, and then at the end of uh, of two years, I actually went on a skiing holiday to France. And just before the just before I left, uh, I got together with my boss. It was early. Uh, you know, early to late January, and he said to me, oh, what do you have planned for next year with the staff and whatever, because I was a sales manager. And I actually turned around to him and I said, you know, Mark, I actually don't have any plans for the staff. He said to me, what? I said, I'm, I am so consumed with the surf ski paddling thing, and it's going so well, and people are loving it, so I'm getting so much positive feedback. I, 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 I said to him, I'm actually totally, 100% consumed, I'm having so much fun, and um, after about an hour meeting, I actually resigned right then, then. and uh And I was going on two weeks' leave on a ski trip, and I had and I had two weeks' leave, two weeks' leave available. And so we agreed that I would go on my ski trip and never go back to work again. And that's what happened. So I actually resigned. At that time, the surf ski uh, uh, series was making me exactly naught rands because I spent every cent that came in on on the party. And on organizing stuff and prizes, I mean, we were charging ten rand a person. There was no money in it. It was, it was all just prizes, and uh, yeah. And so I resigned. When I got back from the overseas trip, I had no income, and then for the next nine, 10 months, I I, I tried to acquire sponsorship, and um, I managed to get quite a few product sponsors, but never managed to get any money to come in. And I was actually about to to chuck in the towel when I was lying on the beach in Camps Bay the one day. And uh, a mate of mine who used to, who was, uh, his name's Mark Bailey, he's obviously well-known because he, you know, he's on Survivor as the, uh, as the announcer. We used, to, we used to paddle and sit on the beach every day with our friend Rob Schumbricker who rented out Santam umbrellas. And Mark Bailey came over to me, he actually woke me up while sleeping on the beach uh, in October. And he said to me, boss, you've got to come and talk to Rob Schumbricker and hear the story about Santam giving him money to, to have people you know, to, to have the bodies on the beach. You've got to understand, I've got no marketing background. I, I, I have never even thought about it, how to get money. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't know how to do it. I mean, I really I had no clue. Anyway, so I went over to Rob, chatted about it. He got me onto the, a new uh, young English guy uh, by the name of John Cherry at Suntime. I got a meeting that Thursday. On the Monday, they gave me the money. At the time, I had 200 random accounts. I was actually ready to phone my dad and say, listen, your know, dad, I actually, I failed. I've got to come home and you need to buy me a ticket because I've got no money. And uh, that's how close it actually got. So was. So,
0: okay. that, was, so that, that was the start of... Um, I want to say professionalizing the sport and I don't mean professionalizing yes. the sport in terms of the uh, of the competitors being able to make a living out of it. I'm talking about kind of elev- elev- elevating the sport from the point of it was, you know, kind of run by clubs and volunteers to actually turn this into uh, a way of you making money. I think you were the first person, if I'm not yes. mistaken, where your sole income was out of surf ski and races and, and everything that kind of spun out from 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 then.
1: Yeah, and I tell you, Rob, this is actually a very, uh, a very key story actually because what, what was happening to me all the time um, when I was doing it for fun, okay, so I, I worked at this company and we're actually I was making proper steam. You know, I was, you've know, got to understand I was living in a communal house paying 1,000 Rand rent and I was pulling down like proper double figures. You know what I mean? I was earning big ammo. I had a small car and all I had to do was pay 1,000 Rand rent in and, and And uh, so I had no issues with money. And the surf ski paddling thing was, was my entertainment. And um, and all the time, people would say to me, oh, oh, I see you. Yes, you must be making a mint out of the surf ski thing. I was like, no, I mean, she's charging 10 bucks. I'm giving away more than what I'm getting in. And But it kept on getting played back at me, kept on getting played back at me. And I said to myself, oh, shit, if the next person that tells me that I'm earning money out of this thing that I'm actually working on, yes, I'm having fun, you know, yes, there's money around. I mean, I, I, I sometimes have to put in. You know, and then true's nuts, a good mate of mine, Mark Duncan. He said to me, know, with a wink, he said, "Oh, oh, but you must be doing all right out of the sursky thing." I said to him, "No, I mean, I, I said I don't even count the money. I just take it and I give out prizes. I buy, I buy out prizes. I pay whoever I have to pay, and we come to the next week, and, and and that's it, type of thing." Anyway, so I went back, bearing in mind now that I've got the email thing going now. The email I'm sending out these emails, and it was really it was was driving the, the 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 communication was great. I mean, it was. People used to read them. It was a highlight. And um, and I said, right, we've got to the end of 20 races. Okay, this is now in the end of March. I've run, I think, between 20 and 25 races. And there was 5,000 rand in the pot. I said, I'm taking that 5,000 rand. And for this Clifton Friday Night Dice this Friday, I'm buying beer with the money. And I took 5,000 rand and I bought beers. And all the beers were stacked up in the, on the side there. And everybody knew that this is all the profit from 25 races. And um, anyway, so the race happened and I'll never forget as long as I live what happened. Um, uh, uh, you know, we, we always have, a chat on the beach and you had a few beers on the beach and then you would go up to the life-saving club, a few more beers, get ready for prize giving, etc. And which I actually wasn't running. It was Brian and Lee's story still. And um, I saw a guy come off the beach, hit the showers, come through, pick up a case of beers and walked out. And I was just, I just couldn't believe it. The oak didn't even stay and drink a beer. He just came, did the race, took a case of beers, and left. And in that moment, I said to myself, bugger that. Bugger that. I'm doing all this work and I'm enjoying it, I'm having fun. Yet the people that are participating and enjoying the benefits of, of what I'm putting together here are thinking that I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And in that moment, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna actually. My next email, I'm gonna turn around and I'm gonna say, guys, I am doing this for the money. That's why I'm doing it now. I've done it for fun and and it's been great and it's been fun, but now, now I'm gonna do it for money. And then I also went out to explain how I was going to do it. And I said, What I'm gonna do, every Rand that comes in from Paddlers is gonna go back to Paddlers in paying for race expenses, paying for prize money. And, and you know, that's basically prize money and race expenses. All my income, I'm going to derive from the sponsorship. So I'm going to effectively use the Surfsky series as a vehicle through which I pay myself, but I'm going to get the sponsors to pay me. All the money that you guys give me goes into race expenses. And, and I think it was, it was, it was a, it, it worked really well because I never ever heard that story ever again about anybody thinking, oh, this guy's skinning us here. Look how I many, he's got 200 people on the beach and, and that's 200 times, 20 bucks. And, and what about that series fee? And oh, the sponsors are giving him everything and he's just, you know, he's just, you know, cleaning us up type of thing. And um, and so that, that uh, this all coincided with me deciding because at the end of that season was the January, February where the series ended and then I, I then resigned in the February and then started, started trying to find sponsorships for that October. That, that, that actually happened in March when when uh, I decided that I was going to, you know, make it clear exactly how I was going to go about doing this thing and, and what I was going to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, sadly, um, a, a hint of that has crept back into the – into the sport um, and uh, you know I've always been of the, of the opinion that you know if you want something to be truly world-class and stepped up you need to make it professional you know you know if you pay peanuts yeah. you get money monkeys and there's some fantastic volunteer um, setups there and some really great races over there that run purely on a volunteer basis and, and real hats off to that and they do a great job um, but you know we saw it at cricket and rugby when it transitioned from amateur to professional if you really want to step up to a great level you know, 've got to make it worthwhile for people, I mean if, if you're a volunteer, you know what they do for a living and their families and so forth they're always going to be higher up that list of what they need to do that day and when they've got time yes. they're going to do their volunteer work, which, which you know, even if the best people, their best minds, you you're not, going to get, you're not getting the best of them. so yeah, I mean hats off and, and, and thank you for walking that road for us because I think those uh, a lot of us that uh, have followed in your footsteps and maybe used some of the models are, are benefiting from you kind of having shaped that space in in, in paddler's heads.
1: Uh, The other thing about that is is, is, uh, what I've actually found was very problematic um, with the volunteer scenario and also especially with club committees and stuff. I find that the people that are doing the volunteer work, they feel that they are owed something for their work, but they they don't make money out of it. And it creates, I mean, it just creates so much tension. You know, rather just pay the oak, you know, I eventually couldn't ask anybody to, to help me anymore. You know, I'm organizing 25, 30 races in a row in Cape Town. Eventually, friends are not taking my calls. And so I got to the point where I had said, right, no one will ever volunteer for me ever again. If there's anybody on the beach, they're getting paid in some form. So, for example, uh, the people that used to come down and help me with registration and stuff, the deal was they would come down and then we would go for a meal and a party after the race. And, I was, and I'm, I'm by. Drinks, food, whatever happened on the jaw, we went together and that was their payment. So they never, they never actually got money, but they got the party, they got the, the meal afterwards. And they loved it, you know. And, and just in the same way in Brazilian hotel, uh, we had people who helped with registration and they would get free entry. So it wasn't, it wasn't like you're paying out thousands of rands, but there was no free, there's no free lunch, you know. And, uh, and as you say, you know, if you want to get proper photographs, pay a photographer. You know, everybody, yeah, anyway, I think things worked much better when you were just paying rather than relying on volunteers who then felt that they were owed something, you know.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah for sure, for sure, you know, get the get the best. Look, if you want to do what you're doing and you want to do it to the best, you've got to get the best around you. And nowadays, you know, the best need to make, make a living as much as anyone else. So you need to, you yeah. need to pay their way. Billy, I want, to, I want to jump to something else which I, I, think, I think you are very proud of, if you aren't, you really should be proud of, and that is the connection between surf ski paddling and the NSRI. Yes. Um, for those uh, for those of you guys who don't know, uh, Billy will tell us the story now, but Billy was instrumental in setting up a fund where pretty much every surf ski in South Africa on a monthly level now contributes to the NSRI, and uh, as a result of that, fundraising has launched well, I don't know how many Billy will tell us. Um, uh, NSRI rescue boats that are named Spirit of Surfski one two three four five and so on. That are not dedicated only to Surfski; they they dedicated for the NSRI and all their, their services and their needs. Billy, I know there's quite a story about how that all how that came about and why it came about. Um, I, yeah. I've never actually heard you tell it. I'd love to hear it. <laughs>
1: so it's actually it's a great story, I must say. Uh, so just to give you upfront what the word is now. Uh, bearing in mind, so right now, 3,750 paddlers um, have a, a monthly debit order of various amounts to NSRI, and we pretty much raise 100,000 rand per month. And so right now, we're on about 7.2 million rand that has been raised since 2006. And um, this money has gone towards six boats that have been bought, and, and any time now will be number seven, because basically, we'll name a boat a year because we're raising a million rand. Uh, and 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 you know, and then some a year. So how this all came about is quite funny, really, because uh, it came about because every weekend uh, you can imagine trying to find safety boats at a different venue every Sunday, often not at life-saving clubs. Uh, it was a huge challenge to get people to out onto the onto the water, and uh, and so we used to uh, make use of the of the NSRI a lot. Um, this culminated in uh, a very famous race from Naismith to Sedgefield. And uh, with the help of Alistair, um, I can't think of his last name for a second. Ah, I'll think about it later. Uh, he, uh, he got the NSRI down. Well, I phoned the NSRI. He went and saw them. And the, the race was, was, was from the heads out of the Nasa Lagoon and finished at Sedgefield. And on this day, uh, the, uh, the waves were breaking across the heads. It was huge. Anyway, the NSRI said, oh, guys, I don't think it's such a good idea. He so, look, don't worry. What we'll do is we'll wait for the tide to fill in and then we'll go. And no one has actually even seen the size of the surf at Sedgefield at the other end. Anyway, so the, the race is 30Ks, unbelievable downwind, cracking event. Came in through the surf. I personally came through, you know, most people actually got through the surf guide quite easily, interesting enough. But then a few people got stuck, notably old Sean Butler. Uh, he got stuck in the uh, in a rip current where the, 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 there was such a radical rip current. And eventually the, the NSRR twin engine. Boat, a, a big ducky, decided to come inshore and attempt to um, to save him, and he actually uh, the boat actually overturned, and um, they managed to right the boat and get it back out and got it back to to Nizer. anyway. So that happened. Guys were all saved. Race went on, and at the time I was you know actively engaged with the NSRI, trying to do you know, to do fundraising for them, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and I went along to the NSRI headquarters and um, I went and saw the, the CEO and we got talking about, uh, about fundraising and I was telling him that we raised 5,000 Rand the previous weekend. And, and he said, oh, Billy, that's great. Thank you, Thank you so much. Uh, so I want to take you back to, uh, this is now the NSRR CEO speaking. He said, I want sort to of take you back to Neisner, which was like six months before. Because I never heard anything about the boat going over or anything. He said, listen, boss, that 5,000 Rand, uh, what I must just let you know is that the NSRI goes out, we never ask questions. Our role is to help people. We don't give them a hard time when we save them. We simply save them and we walk away. That's why we exist. I said, oh, that's wonderful. He said, what you've got to just bear in mind that each of those engines that went over at uh, at Sedgefield Beach were 250,000 rand each, not to mention the craft. In total, that boat cost us 700,000 rand. So thanks very much for, for raising your 5,000 rand. Anyway, so that sort of really got me started to thinking, geez, I've got to do something to, to, uh, to raise money for them. Anyway, so you know, time went on, and we actually started to use the NSRI less and less because they weren't reliable. Because if anything else happened, they would obviously revert to a rescue situation rather than following surf paddlers around in a circle. And, um, and then, uh, then we had the scenario in 2006 when uh, Kasper Kruger, when Kasper Kruger was saved after a seven-hour search in, in the most horrendous uh, conditions. And uh, and they were incredible. I mean, they were unbelievable. And uh, I then went back to the CEO of the headquarters of the uh, of NSRI and I said, look, we, we are ready. I want to create a fundraising campaign with, uh, for surf ski paddling. But I want all the funds that are raised by the surf ski paddlers to be ring-fenced and acknowledged as having been raised by us. He said, no, 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 we can't do that. Their fundraising team has got a certain model that they use, and they've been using it for many years, and uh, simply the answer is no, you can't create a separate campaign. So I said, well, I said, surely, what about a debit order system, you know, for surfskate paddlers that we can very simply know who, uh, you know, who's putting the money in? I said, what's the cheapest, you know, amount that can be, done on an EFT, which will be meaningful for the, for the, for NSRI. He said, look, I don't know. I'll come back to you. Anyway, he came back to me and he said, yeah, the, the smallest debit order that we can do, which will be meaningful is 25 Rand. So I said, well, let's create a 25 Rand per month debit order system for the search paddlers. And, and he reluctantly agreed because it meant that they would have to actually go to their fundraising team and create a whole new, they have to teach hundred people how to phone out with this new offer which was basically, hi, I got your number from Billy Harker from surf ski peddling. Uh, We recently saved the life of Castle Kruger and we wanted to start a monthly debit order campaign to raise funds for the NSRI. Anyway, so eventually, um, after much kicking and screaming, uh, because I, didn't get, I hadn't given them the database yet, I said, look, I'm only giving you the database if we can do it this way. And eventually they, they relented and agreed and, uh, and it's been a smash hit, you know, Park success. Um, and they've uh, they've given us great acknowledgement for us. Myself, and my wife Tracy, we we get invited often to the to the events. We've uh, actually achieved uh, received a very you know the most prestigious award that the NSRI gives. It's called the Marian Martha Award or something for uh, for service to the NSRI. So it really has been an amazing um, amazing campaign. But the reason that it started was because the guy had. Uh, the sea herd, you know, he really made me feel like a small little pea in the pod, and uh, I, I, that was a big part of the motivation, I have to say. But uh, but obviously sparked by the saving of of it, all, I mean, everything worked together at the end of the day. And and obviously credit must obviously go to all the paddlers who actually put the money in. Obviously, I don't I don't put the money in myself, but uh, yeah, it's been a wonderful a wonderful campaign that's going to hopefully run forever.
0: Yeah, Billy. Yeah, thanks for putting that together. Um, you know, I know there's uh, a good number of paddlers who've uh, who've uh, who possibly wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for NSRI. Um, I know in, oh, yeah. the, in their latest book there's two or three chapters dedicated to surf ski rescues as well. So for anyone listening out there, if you want to support your local rescue organisation in South Africa, it's the NSRI. I'm not sure how the models work in other countries, but uh, it's a good place to uh, to uh, open your wallet and support. And uh, yeah, Billy, thanks for giving us a way um, a way to do that. Um, yeah i want to billy can we talk about i kind of and again keeping an eye on the time i'm interested to know yeah. the transition for you from kind of you know being a footloose fancy free bachelor running races putting a great series on durban and so forth and it they, they think kind of you know that series wound down i caught it in its, in its tail end and you've obviously transitioned yeah. from yeah. those days to a to a husband, to a father of, I think, 704 kids. So I'm not sure. Last time I checked, there were so many running <laughs> yeah. around. Um, yeah. You know, what, what brought that series to an end? And how's that transition been from you? A bit of a, bit of a personal question, I suppose. Uh, but give us, uh, give us what you feel comfortable sharing there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, we, uh, a few things happened with the Sursky series towards the end. I would say the, the biggest thing for us, um, uh, for, you know, we, uh, as I'm to myself, my wife, Tracy, uh, is that we had our first child, Henry. And so we, we we got to a point where we had to decide where we wanted to live. We couldn't live, we used to live in the summer in Cape Town for six months and then in Durban in winter. And um, when when Henry was about a year old, we realized that we needed to actually put his name down in a school in a year's time. So in that time, we would have to sell two houses and buy another house and choose a school, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It also coincided with um, the fact that I was beginning to become more and more frightened of something, uh, you know, happening during a race from a safety perspective. Uh, it was during a time where people were very blasé about about safety, and we were driving this whole wearing life jackets, leash, cell phone. You know, no one wanted to do it, and we, we oh, it was such a hack. And um, and uh, yeah, you know, so and and also, it also came at a time when people were 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 after more and more and more radical downwind events that was like the pinnacle and in order to keep that core paddler satisfied we were starting to do more and more radical downwind events which obviously were were were, were becoming quite frightening for me as a race organizer you know because I because I'd had the experience of actually losing someone um uh, in an event that I was involved with and uh, and then the third thing was that uh, a big thing that happened was that DSTV opened up from one sports channel to like five sports channels, and they also at the same time they suddenly said that the shows that we were putting on TV would no longer air at prime time; they would air after nine o'clock at night, and the numbers just plummeted. Um, and so we used to make uh, about twelve half an hour shows a year, and it was our it was, you know, obviously the the we we'd get a lot of money. It cost us a lot of money. It cost us 60,000 Rand times 12 shows to put them on TV. But that was how we were able to actually get all the sponsors to put in money into the series. And um and so the the viewership of those events just crumbled. Um but the sponsors at the time, they weren't too concerned about it because they were far more interested in in the lifestyle elements and the names on the boats and the direct email communication, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, what happened was Discovery Health decided that they were not going to continue with their sponsorship after 10 years, so I had to go and find someone else. Um, at first, I found Sunglass Hut, uh, and they were involved for two years, and then they they had changes there, and then it was best for, and it was getting more difficult to actually get sponsorship. sponsorship. And, and what happens with sponsorship is that Contrary to what people think, is that sponsors each year they actually want more the next year for less. They, they they don't just want the same. They always want more, but they want to pay less. And it was getting really, it was getting harder and harder and harder to get to get and keep sponsors involved. So all those things considered, uh, myself and Tracy decided to move to Durban because that's where our families are from, and. Um, and then for two years we actually ran it remotely, where I actually went down to Cape Town during the uh, during the summer um, for some of the races, and then we actually handed the series over to uh, David and Nikki Mocker for them to run, and they were actually you know paid a portion of what came in. And uh, I mean I'd I'd have to sort of guess what happened with David, but the, David and Nikki because they, I think they they wanted to focus on other things. The Sersky thing was supposed to be a sideline story, and I think in essence, it actually wasn't worth the money because it just it took up too much time, and they weren't getting enough money in and, and there was no way for their them to get more money um and but I think also at the same time they were wanting to do other things anyway so so that's how it basically all kind of wound up is that i it was a combination of the safety aspects, the fact that the the media platform that we had used to generate the income had disappeared. Um, So we had to, I actually had to reinvent the whole thing. If I was, if I was going to be able to generate the same kind of funds and the fact that we were now living in one place and we didn't know how to, uh, we didn't, there wasn't enough money to pay somebody else to do it. And yeah, so we just decided that we were going to wrap it up from our side. We passed over the Durban series to Barry Lewin um, and then we, basically gave the series to Mary Learn in Durban and we gave it to uh, Dalvin Mokka in Cape Town, Daviniki, And yeah, and then for a year in Durban, we, we helped run, run the, uh, the next series uh, just to, you know, make sure that it didn't all fall apart immediately. And then, uh, yeah, we went on our way and, and uh, we, we took a huge chance because we actually didn't have another income at the time, but we kind of had a year to work it out. And that's when we, um, we got offered the opportunity to buy the Durban 2D retail stores, two of them, and, and we just took a running jump and, and did it. So, yeah, and it worked. So, so we did that for four years. And then, uh, whilst we were doing the, the 2D business, the uh, the Funky Pants that Tracy had made uh, started to gain a bit of traction. And what we would do is we'd always take it to the events when we went with 2D. And, um, and then, we in those four years, we grew the Funky Pants brand. Until eventually, the, the owner of Thule decided that he wanted to buy the shops back because he was wanting to take those stores more into sort of a hardcore retail uh, environment, and we didn't really have the appetite for that. And, and in fact, we weren't really actually making that much money. We found that we were making more money out of the funky pants in, in, in the first place because we had a bad year, our last year of Thule. Um, and I think well, it was 2016, so I think everybody had a bad year. Uh, you know, Mr. Price had a bad year. It was a bad, it was a tough retail year, and uh, so we sold in two thousand and seventeen. Uh, and again, we just took a running jump. We didn't actually know at the time Funky Pants wasn't actually making enough income to support us as a family. And um, yeah, in that in that year we we it, uh, it took off and and uh, yeah, long may it last until we hit the lockdown. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah I think where many many millions of people are in that uh in that bucket right now um but ending the the serfsky series wasn't the end of you running events. There's been a host of events that you've run and still run that are all remarkably successful. The one that I notice, and there are others I know that I'm not aware of, but the one was the Sandy. That, uh, that really seemed to capture the imagination. And I think, again, was something really novel that, that you created. What was the story behind the Sandy?
1: So what happened with the Sandy um, is that I started organizing, you know, so now whilst organizing surfski paddling races, I thought, you know, I'm here. Why don't I organize other events on the same day? And so I started something called the Sunrise Run Series, where I would actually stage a running race before the surfski race. So race, surfski race would start at 9, the Sunrise Run Series would start at 7am, and I did like five of them um, uh, during the the, the the winter season in Durban, and they, they went very well. They were very well received, great vibe, and so I started to develop a, a running database, and um, yeah, so what happened with the Sandy um, was that we, it was the day of the Scotbra, and in Durban we had never cancelled an event, ever, in in the 10 or whatever, 12, 13, 14 years, I'd organized races in Durban. And um, we went down to Scottborough and the surf was absolutely humongous. And we, I'd, I'd called the race on, got everybody down to Scottborough, which is a 45-minute drive from Durban. You know, an hour, if you're coming from Belito and, and further afield, it was a long way. And I had to cancel the event and I was absolutely devastated. So we packed up all of our stuff and, uh, and came home and I said to, my, to Tracy, I said, look, I actually, I have to go and blow off some steam. I just am so, so bleak. And I, th- and I said to her, I, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see, because it was, it was, the thing was on that day, it was spring low tide. I said, I've always wanted to know if I could actually run from our house on the beach, from the Amgeni River to Amstango on the beach. Because the beach for about six kilometers is actually a, a mangrove swamps. And just, there's no access. You can't access the beach anywhere there. So anyway, so I ran from home. I ran through the, uh, through the the mangroves and I ran on the beach to Amshvanga. And it was absolutely amazing. And in fact, I'd never seen that beach from the beach side. And so I decided to, again, just for fun, you know, just, uh, I just, I I actually did it for fun. There was no other reason other than just because I, I thought I wanted to actually reveal this part of the beach and people were, People, you know, because it's an historical thing, this beach has been closed off, people were sort of nervous to go there. And there's nothing to be nervous about. So it was a combination of wanting to actually expose people to this beautiful stretch of beach uh, in Durban. And uh, and also, you know, as I say, I, I really, I, 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 my heart and soul, I actually enjoy organizing things. It's, I get a lift out of it. I love it when it comes together. It's amazing to enjoy the success of it. and uh, And to... And to enjoy the event with the people that come down and participate. I, I think it is, uh, you know, I mean, you know the feeling. Uh, that it, it's a lovely feeling. I mean, last year's uh, Freedom Paddle, that, that scene at, around the pool, the bar full, the beers flowing, people are happy. It's an, I mean, you, you can tell me. How, how does that, that feel to you?
0: Yeah, it took, uh, I think it took surgery to get the smile off my face. And I, th- I think I was... <laughs> I think I was on a high for a long time afterwards because right up right up until the end of those events to that point where you're done with your job for the day and you can join the guys with a beer and sit around the pool you don't kind of see the the forest for the trees and then when you can kindly have that perspective and sit back and see the the smiling faces and you get the the pats on the back it's a it's a drug you know I think it's it's as you pointed out there's not a lot of uh, payback uh, in the in these events Um, but that that one in particular that that just that. Feeling of good vibes um, kind of makes it all worthwhile. It's 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 a very difficult feeling to match anywhere else.
1: Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, it's actually
1: it, 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 One thing that I haven't spoken about is is um, is how I actually decided what was what gave me the the strength to resign from a job and take up with this whole surf ski thing. And uh, one of the chaps that I lived with his name is Archie McGill. He actually said to me, he said, Billy, listen, if you've got a big decision to make, what you've got to do is you've got to actually find out what, how to make your vocation your vacation. So I said, well, how on earth am I going to do that? He said, you need to understand what it is that makes you sing. What is that thing that makes you vibrate and happy and excited and satisfied? What is it that gives you that feeling? So I was like, well, I don't know. You see, what you've got to do is you've got to sit down with a piece of paper and you have to think back in your life all the occasions that you have felt that feeling, that warm sense of self, self-satisfaction. I think pride is the wrong choice of words, but you know where you actually are feeling proud of what you've done because there's no doubt that what, what, what you've created or what you've done has been well-received or whatever. Anyway, so I actually did the. I actually did it. I sat down, and I thought about this long and hard, and I sort of cast my mind back. And then, obviously, for me at the time, the hugely successful events that I organised had been the Kingfisher Canoe Club Christmas Party, which was sensational, uh, had been the uh, you know the crab racing event, and then in my own personal capacity, parties that I'd organised, you know, that our friends had attended, and so on and so forth, and and so I slowly went back, and then eventually. I got back to a, a, an occasion where I must have been about eight or 10 years old. I remember clearly in my mind sitting with my mother and we had drawn a court in our courtyard and we were playing bat, bat tennis with all these funny rules or whatever. My mother sat down next to me and she said, Billy, she says, wow, you've got an amazing ability to create excitement amongst your friends around the most simple things. She said, look at the fun, that the guys are having here. And it was like, the light went off in my head and it said to me, listen here, this is what you meant to be doing. This is what you're good at. This is what you enjoy doing. This is the thing, you know what I mean, for you. It's, and you need to find a way to make a, make a living out of it because this is what makes you excited. And when you're excited, then you are able to pass on the excitement to the next guy and this is what you're meant to be doing. And so that's why I actually resigned because I had found which is something was seemingly obvious, you know, like, listen here, you enjoy it, you're good at it, make this your vocation. And that's what exactly what I did.
0: My last question I wanted to ask you was what do you think the secret to your success has been the the series in Durban and Cape Town and how amazing those went with I mean 500 people on the beach uh you know in in in, in you know is absolutely amazing I think a, a quick pat on my back uh Billy and I were comparing notes for last year's freedom paddle as to who got the most paddlers in Cape Town and the freedom paddle just pipped um, Billy's record that was I was hugely proud of that um yeah. and uh, Billy was very congratulatory but Billy I could hear some in your voice you're a little bit like damn my record's been broken but the point I'm making is <laughs> Remarkably successful series. The Sandy did well. You know, it, it's. A, I know there's been some some failures. Well, I don't know, but I'm sure there's been one or two things that haven't worked the way you wanted them to work. But it looks like you've got the Midas touch when it comes to putting events on. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think your secret is? How, why do things work with that? I think you've answered it, that you've lined up your passion and your abilities. You've got them behind each other. Um yeah. But is there is there something else in There's is this is there something that's more deliberate that has kind of fueled this success?
1: You know, in in, in the beginning uh in the beginning uh, what I, what it was is, is that i used to actually I, I think i think energy in equals energy out. number one you know what i mean P- people got to understand that to make something work it doesn't just happen I, I used to phone people so what i would do so for example let's say for, for example i wanted to organize the the year-end party uh i would phone every single one of the the people in the prizes so it was like 50 people that would be a phone call i would then phone their friends and then I would phone the friends of their friends. So I'd take each group of people and I would phone minimum of three people per group. And I would tell them that the other two people in that group were going. So I, w- I would spend hours, hours, hours on the phone. You know, when I organized an event called, it was called One Two Three 3 December. We went to Harbor Island Hotel in the Strand and I managed to get 222 rooms sold in the hotel. And that was, so that was a paddling weekend at Gordon's Bay. 222 rooms ho- sold in a hotel. We did that because we phoned everyone. We got on the phone. We phoned the whole database. I, I had a girl working for her, for me, uh, at the time. We phoned every single person. You know, so these things don't just happen. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a relentless grind. It's phoning people. It's writing emails. It's 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 work on the ground you know we we uh, i used to we, we, for example in durban i would come to durban two months before the start of the season and i would i would go to all every single dice around the province at least four or five times before i said anything about the servsky series so i would just attend just be present in person and i wouldn't talk about the servsky series at all i would enjoy and appreciate what what people had happening in their Environment. Same as the Western Cape. I used to paddle. I used to go to every single event and paddle and be present and enjoy. I did enjoy it. I mean, I wasn't making it up, it was my job. I loved it. But I used to go to the Dyses. I used to go to Peninsula, go to go to Fisher, go to go to you know Millington, go to go to the the, the downwind. Obviously, it was fun. And I could do it now as a single. Are you with me? So uh, and also I think also having. Also, having the the, the negative uh, negative reinforcement of thinking no one is coming. That's what I used to say to myself. No one is coming. If you don't do something, if you don't create something, if you don't come up with a reason, a hook for people to come again and enter the series, they are not gonna come. So what are you gonna do? Type of thing. And and it it really it got hard after 15 years. You got to understand we had to. I had to really think long and hard about how on earth I was going to get people to come back again for another vest type of thing or another pair of shorts or whatever it was. But it, uh, yeah, it was work, Robin. It didn't just happen. I mean, I, people people, you know, often that people, often look at success and say, oh, that's great. He's got a minus. It's not a touch. It's work. And I believe that the, it's the work ethic and the fear of failure. Um, yeah. It was. It, it didn't just happen, you know. Yeah. You know, what else can I say? <laughs> you
0: know, having having taken one or two steps in uh, uh into your footsteps, um, you know, literally one or two baby steps, I can. Uh, I can verify that, and, and certainly I, I, I have seen that. You know, you, if you, The moment you rest on your laurels, your, uh, your numbers drop, and the moment you put, you, put, you put the energy in, I think that's what it is, and the energy can either yeah. manifest as hard work or excitement or enthusiasm or, or whatever it is, but that energy, as you say, energy in or energy out, yeah. Is, is, yeah. Uh, is, is massive, and uh, certainly you're, you're a high-energy It's exactly, Robin, individual. if I could
1: just, just… Sorry, if I, if I'm just interjecting. I mean, it's exactly what happened in Durban this last year uh, with the, the Wallenbach series. My brother, Dave Harker took it over last year, and, uh, and he had a great series, and he put a lot of energy in. And then this year again, he uh, he just put a huge amount of energy and stoke into it, and people turned up. But it was work. Dave talked to people. He got on the phone. He phoned people. He was on WhatsApp. I mean, you on the Durbin-Serski thing. You, you tell me, how did that happen? It was simple. Energy in equals energy out. And people came. I don't know why. It, well, the thing that freaks me out is that I don't understand why people don't just actually just go and participate. Why must they wait for some oak to put energy in? You know, I don't, I don't need energy from somebody else to go down and do the Marine Surfsky series or, or the Freedom Paddle or whatever. I do it because I want to do it. But, but I don't know. Yeah, you know, I don't know what it is that, that uh, in order to get an event with, with, uh, with good numbers, especially something that's new, Requires or it requires energy from the race organizer. I don't, you know, it seems like like what upsets me is like the, the, uh, the KwaZulu-Natal formal road-running calendar. They do exactly nothing. They do zero. And they've got sold-out events. They, they, they do nothing. They start late. They give you cuck prizes. The, the water tables are, are messed and and they they got sold out of It I just it actually freaks me out. But it, but I, I think there, what you have, is that you have, very 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 solid, uh, challenging events. Example, comrades, two oceans, and um, you know I think in paddling in South Africa at the moment, we, we or in surf ski paddling in particular, we, we we don't you know look. I think obviously Cape Point Challenge I think is, is is solid. It's a it's a it's a, it's a it's a great event. It's a solid challenge. Um, so that's one that's definitely strong. I think yours was becoming strong, um, the Freedom Paddle. But in KwaZulu-Tatal, certainly, we, we're struggling. We don't have that solid, challenging event that everybody is into. You know. And, and, and we've seen the numbers really, really battle in total without, uh, without that strong, you know, meaningful, challenging event at the, at the end of the season type of thing.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's a that's a question we've wrestled off with with a lot. Um, you know, how do you know we do such a great sport on a great you know on the ocean? It's just you know, you should we shouldn't have to. Uh you know people should just be beating down the door to, to to come and race and so forth that they're they're not and we've been un- trying to unpack that and figure out why why it is um yeah. but yeah i agree i mean in case it in in the canoeing world perhaps the doozy uh there's a, a bunch of races but in the canoeing world in durban it's maybe the doozy is that anchored event for canoeing and, and it's comrades yes. as well for road running you know i think uh, yes Cape uh, point fills that uh, you know for for the uh, for the, the surf ski group but yeah interesting thing that we can uh, we can unpack at, at length, and I'd actually love to kind of have a second uh, conversation with you where we actually maybe break down and have a look at what it means to, to run events. We've done a fair bit of that now, but you, know, what, you what we should be doing now going forward, because we're definitely a post-COVID-19, we're going to be in the new world. And I think we've been yeah. in a new world in South Africa for a while with the financial hardships we've had, and certainly only going to get harder, but this is not a new thing um, as to what we need to be doing to, to get people uh, involved but yeah i mean if uh, the paddlers listening out there i think if i can put on my my uh, race organizer hat for a moment and forgive me that indulgence um you know the amount of effort and energy that goes on putting the races of the surf ski organizer is tremendous and uh, to have that extra energy to kind of rev up every person that come down and support as well is is a big ask so you know, for the health of our sport, because uh, the races, you know, bring the sponsors, brings money to the sport, sells boats, sells sells funky pants. You know, the whole industry that uh, is built around our sport kind of starts uh, with paddlers rocking up to to do races. And uh, yeah, I don't see why we need to be motivated to do a race because you know, a race is fantastic. You know, I guess some of the challenges Billy might be. I can go do a Miller's run today for free, and it's stonking. Or I can go pay, you know, 150 rand to do a race at uh, at Clifton or somewhere else where it's not a downwind. Now, Which am I going to yeah. choose? But maybe in that environment, we've got to think bigger and go for the health of our sport. You know, maybe we do need to choose and support that support that event. You know, provided the event's putting on a good show, obviously. Um, so yeah. that's my the, my uh, my soapbox for a moment about uh, paddlers supporting paddlers. In fact, that's a that's something I'm quite big on at the moment. A little punt, dot com. I've got a, a business listing going there. If you're a peddler out there, you can go list your business on that for free. Uh, so African business, and uh, I'm so. Kind of calling on other paddlers to use that um, service and if you need something go shop amongst your fellow paddlers and if you need a plumber or an engineering service or a pair of funky pants to paddle in you know shop shop amongst our paddling community um, but billy i want to say thank you very much we've been going for i think coming up uh, an hour and a half right now uh, oh. th- thanks for for kind of lifting the lid on, on on what it is to to be billy harker and the journey that you've uh, you've traveled and for sharing uh, it's been hang of oh, informative. Pleasure. And uh, if, uh, if Billy's down at the pub, guys, I recommend you go down and, uh, and join him. Just uh, make sure you've got nothing planned for the next day because uh, I don't <laughs> think he's backed off too much on, uh, on enjoying the draw. Billy, how's lockdown going for you at the moment with, uh, what's it, four, four kids, eh? five, six of you in the <laughs> house. Am I right?
1: Yeah, we've actually got, uh, we got uh, eight of us. We've got our, our Tracy's folks are here with us. And, uh, well, it's actually okay because we're we busy uh, working on uh, on the funky pants, we we've built an extension to our garage, so we we're rebuilding the whole uh, funky pants thing in the garage. And then yeah, during the day, it's obviously the schoolwork is pretty hectic. And uh, yeah, we've been doing P90X as a family, which has been pretty pretty lekker. So we do that every day. It's like a hour and a half uh, in front of the TV, doing all sorts of things: yoga, plyometrics, uh, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, dips, all that type of thing. So, yeah, no, I must say, it's actually moving along very, very well. Obviously, we, we've also, we've been on, on uh, we went self-isolation, we went skiing. And so, we had, uh, before this isolation, we had 12 days of self-isolation before this. So, we've already been in isolation for, for a month now. Yes, So, it is getting long in the tooth. But, uh, yeah, we, you know, we're very blessed. I mean, we, you know, fortunately, we've got, a, we've got a, a space here. We've got a tennis wall, pool, foosball. Table tennis, you know what I mean? We oaks are running around the garden, we you know, we we're quite well set up, so only problem is that I'm short of grogs.
0: <laughs> it's uh It's uh, my uh, my birthday today. If you guys are listening to this podcast, it won't be today. But today's today's my birthday. And and the plea I put on on Facebook was, uh, can someone organize me a bottle of whiskey or a unicorn? (laughs) It goes to show I've had about four offers of a unicorn and and not a single offer of a bottle of whiskey. So, yeah, that stuff's hard to come by right now. (laughs) but uh billy thanks so much uh everyone out there if uh, i don't know when you're listening to this but uh, i'm sure COVID 19 is probably still ravaging the land wherever you are so stay safe Uh, social distancing wash your hands all of that Uh, but i think most importantly as a human species uh, we need to pull together right now and support one another so uh, look look for love look for support uh, let's not uh, let's not put knives and arrows into each other's backs let's be taking them out and supporting each other and uh, paddlers I'd love to see you guys supporting fellow paddlers in their businesses I'd love to see your guys on the beach at the races and just gener- generally showing the love and uh, be inspired by someone like Billy I know I am who kind of for me epitomises that enthusiasm and that uh, that sense of community so Billy big hats off for for paving the path that you have and the guys that, that as you acknowledge, went before you um, and kind of enabled us I don't think I would be in the sport if it wasn't for you a, a quick story I phoned up Billy early days and said I want to get involved in this paddling thing what do I have to do and it was CSA and I've got to join this that and the next thing which I promptly did um, but I remember then saying listen Billy I'm going to Cape Town um, he'd never met me he didn't know who I was so I'm going to Cape Town uh, I need to borrow a boat have you got a you know who can I talk to he said, oh, I've got a boat sitting in the Oceana racks. And then he looked up my grading and I was an E-grade paddler, which wasn't true. It was actually my father's grading. I hadn't done a race yet. I didn't have a grading. But I remember being quite put out that I was E-grade. And the next thing he was trying to walk back is the offer of uh, loaning a boat. Uh, but he did he did loan it to me. And yeah, thanks for that. I think it was that yellow. I think it was a yellow red 7 back in the day at Oceana. I think uh, it's gone yeah. missing nowadays. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you loaned me that. Wow. Early days. We're talking, I don't know, 2000 and eight something like that maybe uh but anyway enough enough of that billy thank you so much thanks for your time guys i hope you enjoyed this longer than normal podcast and uh billy best of luck mate
1: thanks so much yeah thanks for thanks for this it's been fun reminiscing i appreciate it
0: yeah no no problem and guys billy's definitely around and paddling i'm still trying to twist his arm to kind of Organise the odd race he's certainly helping us with freedom paddle so and i don't think he can help himself as he said that's where his passion lies so uh yeah we'll uh, billy we'll see you around and hopefully uh, maybe we can get you back uh, back organizing races and showing us how it's done in the near future
1: i don't know about that
0: <laughs> <laughs> i try to get him to commit on air there guys but i failed i'll try again later billy legend bud stay strong stay safe and uh, we'll catch you no on back no up That's it, guys. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Tune in next time for all things paddling with SASurfsky.com.